Take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. Luke wrote the book of Acts as a testimony to the work of God in believers in the first century as they sought to spread the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Christ. And such news would certainly rock the world. Those who were witnesses would certainly need strength. They would need encouragement. They would need endurance, especially in a world that was fraught with such opposition as the one that the uh, church was birthed in in the Roman Empire. Christ gave the apostles basically two commandments. They were to wait until the Holy Spirit would empower them for service, and then they were to be witnesses of all that they had seen concerning Christ. Uh, We would do well to follow those same directives, to seek the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, uh, and to be witnesses, to simply recount what Christ has done. So we're going to take a look today at verses 6 through 11. We are going through the book of Acts verse by verse, and just started last week, and our target is to be done by 2020. So uh, let's go ahead and stand as we look at our passage. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Father, we are at this moment once again in our service where we open up your word, and we acknowledge that there is something supernatural that we seek to take place, and that is transformation. And so we need your Holy Spirit for that. We need your your spirit to understand the word and to put it into practice. Father, we don't throw this aside. Uh, We don't see this as simply some kind of intellectual exercise but we see it as a way that we can be equipped. You tell us in your word that we are, to, uh, we are to teach the word of God, we're to be faithful in this, and that you equip and grow your saints and mature them through this. And I pray and invite you to do that with each of us today. Lord, we don't claim to know it all. We don't claim to be exhaustive with what's going on in this passage, but we trust, Lord, that what we are talking about is is accurate as what you want for us today. May your Holy Spirit take it and use it in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said in agreement. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The question that the apostles ask in verse 6 has come under great scrutiny. And I think it's worth noting what Jesus basically chides them for and what he does not. He does not correct them 
about their idea of a physical kingdom, we are prone to do just that, to talk about, you know, the apostles shouldn't have been looking for such a thing. And particularly, they were looking for a a political, military conquest of, of Rome and Israel could be set up. It seems obvious that's what they were, were talking about. And it's common to criticize them for that. But Jesus doesn't make that his point. This is just what I, I want us to see. Now, it's not that they, they never overdid that. They, they did at times. But that's not the issue that Jesus was addressing here. In fact, we could say this, that, that it was okay to associate a physical manifestation of the kingdom when it came to the Holy Spirit being manifested in them. Because when the Holy Spirit was promised in the Old Testament, it was often associated with these physical manifestations. Now, you may think, boy, this is just some minute theological detail. It has nothing to do with us. Just hold on to your horses here. I think you'll see the the, the practical realities that come to bear as a result of this. Isaiah 32 talks about the Holy Spirit being poured out from on high, and then says, my people will abide in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. I don't think that's allegory or just spiritual, but something physical. And then in Ezekiel 39, 28 and 29, it says, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining until the nations any, uh, among the nations anymore and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God." Clearly, there are aspects to the kingdom where there are physical manifestations. And what Jesus is simply saying, I think here, is that I don't want you to focus on all that right now. That was for a later time. And in fact, he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. And he uses interesting words. Times is a Greek word, chronos, and it describes a duration of time, such as, you know, minutes, hours, weeks, uh, days, whatever. Seasons is the Greek word keros, and it refers to a, a date or fixed time or event. If I were describing Kronos, you know, we might say, well, it, it, it took us four years to finish school. And if we were describing in terms of, of Keros, we might say that, you know, we got our degree or I got my degree on May 22nd, 2000 or whatever. So whether it's in naming a date or talking about a, a, a duration or, or period of time, the point of the passage is you're not to worry about that. That's not to be your concern. In fact, Matthew 24, 36 says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So don't spend one second trying to figure it out. That's not where I want you to put your attention. But even though all of that is said, what do we do? And it doesn't stop people. William Miller said the Lord was coming back October 22nd, 1844. Hal Lindsey, author of the popular book, Late Great Planet Earth, he targeted 1988 as the date. And even another guy on TBN who wrote a book called 88 Reasons that Jesus was coming back, 1988, Jesus was coming back. TBN interrupted their programming 
to tout that date. And after the date passed, they went back to their regular programming. Eating crow is not good for donations or for ratings. Look at it this way. Let's say that you work for a company and they're throwing a Christmas party. And all the employees are talking about the party, about the food they're going to have, the drink they're going to have at the party. And the boss sees you and, and, and the other employees talking with one another in a group while you should be working. And you're sitting there wondering, I wonder what kind of drink they're going to have. I wonder what kind of food, blah, blah, blah. And the boss comes up to you and she says, hey, what are you doing talking all about the party? You need to be concerned about what? Working the task that you were given. It's kind of the same thing that was said to the disciples in Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. It was the parable of the ten minas. And listen to this verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Kingdom living is not about all the knowledge that we can gather about dates or whatever. It's about living with a sense of urgency about his coming and doing kingdom work each and every day. We could say it this way. Our task is not chiefly political or social, but it's spiritual. And our means of influence is not power twisting somebody's arm, but listen, it is service, it is sacrifice, it is humility. And I might add also a cross because it's modeled after the very life of Jesus. Jesus tells the story further in Luke 19 and he talks about people that were given certain amounts of money and they were to go and do business and some did that, but one took it and kept it, did not invest it, did not do business with it, kept it, kind of, you know, the self-protection, fearful of losing it all. And the ones who had used it, they were rewarded. The person who kept it, did not use it, he was judged harshly. The point is, serve your nobleman well, Right? And, of course, in the story, who's the nobleman? Well, ultimately, it's Jesus. Serve him well. Be faithful now. What's interesting about this story is the historical backdrop to when Jesus said all of this in Luke 19. In that day, they were under the rule of a man by the name of Archelaus, who was the son of Herod the Great. Since the Roman Empire covered many different regions and cultures, Caesar, who ruled over the entire empire, allowed different people to rule different sections of the kingdom. Now, Herod ruled Judea until his death in 4 BC. Three sons were then given portions of it, and Archelaus was given Judea, where Jerusalem lay. And now, since Archelaus received this role of leader by virtue of an inheritance... When he was only 18, he was yet to be officially sanctioned by Rome. Now, here's an interesting thing about Archelaus. He was extremely impetuous, and he was also very corrupt. For instance, there were some Jews that removed 
a Roman insignia from the temple. And Archelaus, in March of 4 BC, had those two teachers responsible and some of their followers burned alive. We talk about a public display. Well, the Jews did not take kindly to that and began to revolt. And so Archelaus comes with an iron fist and the military, and he kills over 3,000 Jews who were revolting about his corruption and his violence. As you can imagine, it was not a move that engendered him to Judea. And when Archelaus goes off to Rome to receive his official coronation as king, Caesar is greeted by a contingency of 50 Judeans who protest. And Caesar strikes a deal that allows Archelaus to rule, but without the official title of king. So when Jesus says in Luke 19, a nobleman, one born into a royal family, went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, they all knew exactly what he was referring to. That was a historical backdrop uh, backdrop to communicate the truth about the kingdom. Now, in real life, even this this, uh, impetuous, corrupt leader, Archelaus, would reward people who served him. And the point was, how much more Will a good and godly king, Jesus, reward those who work in the kingdom? He will be faithful to reward those who serve him. Notice what Jesus does not tell the disciples to do in Luke. He doesn't tell them to, you know, go and protest. He doesn't tell them to build an army. He doesn't tell them to flex their political muscle and get rid of the rat, Archelaus. No. He emphasizes rewards and faithfulness and the work of the kingdom now. I mean, wouldn't that have been the perfect time to get rid of this snake? The time for societal overhaul? That would come at the second coming. That was not now. Until then... There is a job to do in the kingdom. And I think the application to a Christian's focus and goals and motives in the public square today should seem rather obvious to us. Nothing wrong with getting involved. Said this before. But when it comes to changing the culture, we do that one heart at a time through the gospel. We use service. We're to use kindness. We're to use humility in the kingdom of God. In a discussion this past week with white and black church leaders here in this area, we were planning an event for later in the fall, and on the table was a discussion about something that would that would promote the the healing, that would might might promote something that would show the The racism has to be broken down. And as we talked about these issues in a very open and honest conversation, an idea just kind of floated to the top. And they thought, well, what if we did a foot washing? What if we had the white church leaders kneel down and wash the feet 
of the black church leaders here in town. An act of submission and humility. You say, you know, that's just taking all that stuff too far. Well, I guess Jesus just took it too far then. Because that's exactly what he did to his disciples. He washed their feet. Now listen, education, food, housing, real needs that must be addressed. But the kingdom of God starts with those internal things, matters of the heart. It uses tools that are unfamiliar with most political and social machinations. What are the opportunities? What are the resources that the kingdom uses today? Well, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So certainly we're a steward of the mysteries of God. That, that's, that's of the word of God, the gospel, all that it entails. And we've been given a responsibility to manage that well. But also there are other resources that God gives us. And quickly, I'd just like to talk about that. God has given us, for instance, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we faithful in maintaining unity? Are we loyal? Do we love well? Do we, do we communicate with truth in the body of Christ? Are there any relationships that need immediate attention? See, that is kingdom work now. People say, well, you know, I don't know what I should be doing for the kingdom right now. How about right now operating with healthy relationships? That is a part of our kingdom responsibilities. God has given you influence in your employment, at work. You have an opportunity to labor as under the Lord, to be Honest in all of your dealings with customers, with employees, to treat them with respect. By the way, to show up on time and give a full day's labor. That's part of being in the kingdom of God. God has given us family. We have opportunity to, to care for, support, love our family members, honoring the marriage vows. God has given us his word. We had opportunity to, to, to read it, to know him, to worship him in spirit and truth, to keep us open to his leading. We drink it, and that's part of our kingdom responsibilities. God has given us financial resources, time, treasure, and talent. We're to use all of that in consideration of how it can impact the kingdom. See, we can't say, well, you know, I don't know what I should be doing. Listen, you've got all these responsibilities. We all have the same responsibilities in terms of the kingdom, like I just mentioned. That's a lot to do. That's certainly not exhaustive. But these are things we can do now as we live out the kingdom. And here's some great news. Well, actually, it's bad news and great news. Bad news is you can't do this on your own. The good news is he's empowered you for it. God has given us the power. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Notice the scope of the apostles, and by extension, I think our scope as well. We are to be witnesses locally or in Judea, and then uh, on the outskirts in Judea and Samaria, and then beyond that into all the world. That doesn't mean that every Christian is required to go be a vocational missionary, but I think it calls us to be a world-minded Christian. 
That means that our hearts are open, that, 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 that we extend to others our love of different nationalities, different economic levels, different races. You know, I've heard of many Christians who talk about short-term missions or, or full-time missionaries. It's a waste of money. Why don't we care for our own here? where it can benefit us. I'll tell you why, because Jesus commanded us not to do that. <laughs> because we, we, we have an outlook that it's not just here, we're to take care of our own here, but we're also to have an eye for others as well. Christ is asking us to extend our reach, to expand our hearts. And listen, our flesh wants us to protect what we've got. I get that. Play it safe. The fact is, every time we go on a short-term trip, and by the way, does it seem like more people are going on short-term trips in our church now than any time? And that's awesome. And and every time you, you have a missionary who goes or he comes and share, what a joy that is to see what God is doing in their life. But every time they do that, and by the way, every time we step out of our comfort zone. To pursue a relationship with somebody who's different than us religiously or racially or economically. Those are risks that we take. And obedience without risk isn't worth a whole lot. Maybe that's why Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. He's going to empower us to be witnesses. Do you know that that word is the same root word for martyr? Isn't that interesting? Many who witnessed of the gospel in the first century died for it. The word came to mean that, one who dies for his witness or for his testimony. Jesus said, if any man comes after me, he must deny himself and take up his what? His cross. That's right. Christianity without a cross is religion without a risk. Foreign to the biblical picture of life in Christ. Did you know that there were more Christians martyred last year than in any other year in modern history? Did you know that more Christians have been killed the last 100 years for their faith than all other centuries of church history combined? That reminds us, I think, when we're, when we're aware of what's going on when we, we hear of other Christians, for instance, maybe in, in Muslim countries, losing their head, experiencing great violence, that God has called them and, and, and equipped them to handle that. And you know what? He'll do the same for us. In any situation, he equips us. God has empowered us to be witnesses. Listen, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you have what it takes to be a witness. Spirit-empowered believers are witnesses who simply give testimony to the power and the truth of Christ. I don't know all the answers. I'm not a theologian. I can't quote you, you know, a bunch of Bible verses, but I am a witness to what Christ has done in my life, and I'm going to express that. And listen... It's going to, and it is, increasingly more difficult in a post 
Christian society because Christians are continually being marginalized. If you think that you can walk in biblical Christianity and have the approval of the culture, those days are gone. They are gone. And trying to recapture that is a mistake. We are to be about kingdom values, living out our... We are not going to be a Christian nation through political means. If God does it, I mean, I would welcome it, but it will be done one at a time through a spiritual revival, not because a political party takes over. That's for sure. But we, as we live biblical Christianity out, Christians will be marginalized as being extremists, homophobic, intolerant, and the list goes on. And I'm not talking about the Christians who actually are those things, because there are people who are those things who truly hate other people. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about people who truly love, who truly serve, who truly will have a a, a biblical boundary that, hey, this is where the line is. Those people are going to be marginalized as well. So we need, listen, we need the Holy Spirit to energize us, to help us endure. Listen, I don't say these things because I am upset about where our nation is going and we need to get it back. That's not my goal. And if you are wanting to twist my arm for your political means, you're going to be really disappointed. You probably won't stay too long either. Because our ministry as a church is through the gospel. It's not that I eschew political things. I'm involved. I vote. I like to see changes. I get that. But my hope is not in those things. My hope is not in that. How can the Spirit empower us? One way is he empowers us with the life of Christ in us. John 14 says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you, and he will be in you. Now, some folks say that, well, when Jesus said you're going to do greater works, that means that, well, if Jesus walked on water, we're going to walk on air. Or Jesus got rid of a a hundred demons, we can get rid of a thousand. But the context doesn't cast it like that. What it means is when Jesus was on the earth, he could only be in one place at one time. Now with the Holy Spirit living inside each of us, Jesus goes in a million different places around the world. The Spirit is going to be in the disciples. The presence of Christ will be wherever the disciples go. The influence of Christ will be manifested in every believer. You know what that means? That means millions of Christians who serve, who wash feet, who humbly lay down their life. That's cool. That is really cool. The Spirit empowers us for clarity and truth. 
When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The spirit helps us. It's like the spirit of God creates the bullseye, puts the focus on Christ, puts the focus on truth. In fact, we could maybe say it this way, that the less that Jesus is the core of our witness, the less power we have. And I just want to... I just want to stand where Jesus is, stand where the gospel is, stand where the word of God is. You know, if people want to get sidetracked on all the other issues that go on and people that, you know, they get all hepped up about. You know, I, I get people ask me all the time, you know, what's my opinion of this or that? Had somebody text me and they had another workmate who wanted to uh, discuss these minute issues of like prophecy and all this. And it was like really trying to get in this guy's head about this. And I just said, listen, dude. It's a waste of time. (laughs) It's a waste of time. You don't argue with somebody like that because you're going to get nowhere. They get sidetracked. You know what that does? That makes us really arrogant because I know something you don't. You know, I've got some understanding that you need. Oh, little ones, come and feed from the trough, all right? And that's the kind of attitude that kind of comes across because we have this little knowledge Next, the Spirit works supernaturally through us for godly fruit. The testimony of Acts was how God used others through miracles and supernatural ways to extend the gospel. Now, certainly part of the fruit is the fruit of the Spirit as well, internally, character-wise. But also, God was doing some unbelievable things. His people just gave testimony to Jesus. And when you see that happen, man, once you see God move like that, it's like, this is so cool. You just want to continue to focus on Jesus and let God do his work. And I've seen moments where just if you, if you keep the focus upon Christ and truth, God can do some cool stuff. I remember being in a, a juvenile detention center. I mean, I wasn't there living. I was there giving the gospel. It was about 30 or 40 guys, you know, and mostly minority, and just gave my testimony, gave the gospel, and I mean, it was like uh, two-thirds of them, 25 of them just trusted Christ right there. And I'm like, what do you do now, You're right? And then I uh, was in a, in, a, in a situation where I was in a Hungarian Reformed church outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Myself and two other buddies in Bible school were invited to be at this VBS where they had, and I don't know the exact number of kids, maybe 30 or 40 kids were there. And we just gave our testimony, gave the gospel, and in the back was the pastor, or I think he was a, maybe been a priest or something, and he was rocking back and forth. You could tell he was really upset because they didn't believe what we believed. And how we got in was just through an invitation of somebody who was a teacher there. And we just gave the gospel, talked about Christ. And as we gave an invitation... Every one of those kids came to trust Christ. It was unbelievable. We didn't know what to do. We were taking these kids into separate rooms and and praying with them. And as we were doing this, the pastor was following, kicking us out. Get out. I don't want this in here. (laughs) It was craziness, right? But it was like the, the gospel was offensive, but God was also using it in a powerful way in the life of those kids. God works supernaturally through us 
with godly fruit. Next, the Spirit empowers us for unity. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. The Spirit empowers for unity. How is it? How is it? That you could have a diverse body of believers from different political perspectives, different nationalities, different economic levels, and they are unified together and love one another with a deep fellowship. That is the Holy Spirit who empowers that unity. And that unity is focused around the gospel. It's focused around the person and work of Jesus. That is why we are unified. We are not unified because we agree on the prophetic scheme or because we all use the same version of the Bible. We all agree with the charismatic gifts. We're not unified because of all these other issues, but because of the gospel. And we get ununified. Disunity occurs when we start harping on something else. And it happens a lot, doesn't it? Next, the Spirit empowers us for confidence and courage. Romans 8, 16 says the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. 2 Corinthians 3, 3 and 4 says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. We have a, a confidence and a boldness. Not Not in an irritating way, not to get in somebody's grill to turn them off, but we don't turn down opportunities. We walk through the doors that God opens, and we watch God do some really cool stuff. And he gives us confidence and power in those situations. This is ordinary people doing extraordinary things because of the power of God of the Holy Spirit in us. Listen, the Holy Spirit is not a luxury, but a necessity in our life. And we rely upon the Holy Spirit daily as we welcome the presence of Christ in our lives. We allow him to to help us to understand the word, to obey the word. How do you do that without the Holy Spirit? And when He had said these things as they were looking on. He was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Two angels assure the apostles, that Jesus will come again physically. Just as he lived, just as he died, was buried, rose again, ascended with a physical body, he is going to come back in a physical body. And then it's almost like God put a stamp of approval with it, the Shekinah glory, the cloud that typified God's presence in a situation, just as he had done many times before throughout the Old and New Testament. And then the angel says, don't stand here staring into heaven. Get to the task. Look for his second coming. He will come again. Use that as motivation. Allow the second coming to motivate you for your work today. 
You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour. You do not expect, Luke 12, 40 says, there is urgency in those words. It conjures up hope. It conjures up rewards. It conjures up accountability as we will fall under the gaze of a holy God at the end of our life for our works. You say, well, I don't operate with fear. Well, I'll tell you what, that gives me the eebie-jeebies. You can call it what you want, but we are going to stand before a holy God and answer for our lives. This is not for entrance into heaven. That's already secure in Jesus. But I'm going to answer to God for every word and every action did I live as under the kingdom. Did I squander the opportunities? There is a healthy fear, healthy respect as we realize we serve a holy God. Listen, if the ascension and the resurrection of Christ were myth, these are just hollow words. But there are hundreds of witnesses to these things that we have recorded for us. Eyewitness accounts. If that happened, what makes us think he won't come back a second time? I think he holds his promise. And I think he's coming again. He declares it. And so we are to to grab a hold of that truth and have a holy urgency in our lives. And we are to be about the task in being diligent in kingdom work now. Now. Don't worry about all the other stuff. Kingdom work now. Let's pray.